1776, there was a document that was published. Of course, it's the Declaration of Independence. And uh, the three categories that stand out out of that document by which our country uh, lives by, by which we claim to adhere to, is three unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, but that begs the question then, or why are there so many unhappy people in our country today? And my question for you is, how is your pursuit going, your pursuit of happiness? Yesterday, I happened to catch part of the uh, WSU game with Oregon. And uh, I understand at the end of that game, there were some very happy people and some very unhappy people. But I cannot watch football anymore without thinking of Stuart Briscoe. You may be familiar with Stuart Briscoe. He was the pastor of Elmbrook Church in Waukesha, Wisconsin, for many, many years. Uh, he now has an itinerant ministry. He writes and speaks all over the world. He's very entertaining, actually, if you would get a chance to read his work or hear him. Uh, but he was pastor in Elmbrook when we were in the upper Midwest, and we've met him on a number of occasions. Uh, but he is originally from England. He grew up in England, served in the Royal Marines, and he and his wife moved to the United States to pastor Elmbrook Church as adults. And this is his account of his first exposure to football. Listen as I read his account. He says, It was January when I arrived on my first visit to the United States. I turned on the televisions and saw a picture the like of which I had never seen before. It was a rear view shot of a row of big men in tight pants bending over in such fashion that they appeared to be putting intolerable strain on said pants. Behind them stood a man who seemed to have lost his temper completely. He was yelling and shouting, apparently because the other men had his ball and he wanted it back. Eventually, after much shouting, they gave it to him. He promptly gave it to one of his friends who ran a few steps and was treated to an awful beating by some other men who were wearing similar tight pants but of a different color. They were apparently very sorry about their behavior because after they had beaten him up, they gathered in a small group to pray about it. They were not sincere, however, because they went straight back and did the same thing again. After repeating this whole outrageous procedure about 10 times, the man with the ball suddenly threw it about 60 yards to another man I hadn't noticed before. He caught it, ran a few yards, and did a funny little dance, and the crowd went wild. I thought I had stumbled on some religious festival. Later and subsequently, I discovered that I was right. And... And I was completely mystified until someone started to explain what was happening so that this newly arrived Englishman could understand this game. It appeared that the quarterback had so effectively faked the handoff to his running back that the defensive line and de linebackers had played the run, leaving the receiver wide open to catch the pass and go in for a touchdown. And it all happened because the defensive players chased the man without the ball. The moral of the story is... If you, if you are free to pursue happiness, don't be faked into pursuing it where it is not. And so how is your pursuit of happiness? If that's an inalienable right of every citizen of the United States of America, the question is, is would you describe yourself as a happy person? Uh, some of us would, some of us perhaps would not. As you exercise this unalienable right to pursue happiness, would you say you are closer to this treasure of a happy life uh, or further from it? These are good questions I've contemplated this week. 
If you are pursuing happiness, how would you know what happiness looks like if you ever caught it? I think that's part of the problem is we think we, want to, we all want to be happy, but what does it look like? How do we know when we've arrived? One reason I think many people are unhappy is that they are busy pursuing happiness and they're not sure what it looks like. They're not sure what it is. Why does it seem so elusive to us? We can make the uh, mistake of thinking that happiness is directly related to our happenings. In other words, if our circumstances are all great and wonderful, we can be happy. But if they're not so great and not so wonderful and very adverse, then the frown appears on our face. Perhaps one reason many people are unhappy is that though they are busy pursuing happiness, they aren't sure what it is or where to find it or where to look. People who are free to pursue happiness will not find it if they do not know what it is or where to look for it. And that brings us to this passage in Psalm, Psalm chapter 1. We are going to do a short series out of the Psalms, a few weeks leading up to Thanksgiving, and then we'll do a series out of Isaiah for Christmas. And then after the first of the year, Lord willing, uh, we will start the book of James out of the New Testament. But I wanted to spend some time in the book of Psalms to go back to the Old Testament again. We've been in the New Testament quite a while in the book of Ephesians, and I wanted to return to the Psalms, uh, the Psalms uh, collection of really Hebrew poetry that is put together. And Erica read for us Psalm 1, what we call Psalm 1, although many Hebrew scholars believe that Psalm 1 was basically the Pre, uh, the, the prologue to the book of Psalms. It was the preface, if you will. So if you pick up a Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, you will find that Psalm 1 is not listed as number 1. It is listed as a preface, and then Psalm 2 is Psalm 1. And if that's not confusing enough, uh, try to do some studies and figure out which Psalms are which out of a Hebrew Bible. But anyway, Psalm 1 is uh, a great psalm. It really it does preface, it does summarize the contents of the other 149 psalms in the book of Psalms, what we call the book of Psalms. I've included in your handout a, uh, an article by Ray Stedman who gives you some instructions, some background in the book of Psalms. I'd encourage you to read that later. But Psalm 1 is the beginning point, and it really does summarize what the rest of the book is about. And the Psalms, each one of the Psalms being Hebrew poetry, and there's many different authors. David was primarily the author of many of the Psalms. There was Asaph, who wrote some 10. There was Solomon. Even Moses has a Psalm in the book of Psalms. They spanned many, many years, and so they were collected and put together because they all had a correlation in the type of literature, which is poetic literature. Now, it's not poetry like we learned in the seventh grade. Well, I would have learned it if I wouldn't have been in the dean's office, but uh, the the poetry that we Westerners are used to, it's a little bit different, uh, but it is very beautiful as you read through the Psalms, and it has over the centuries been a place that many of us go in times of desperation, in times of joy, in times of worship. All of these times the Psalms seem to always address where we're at. And so Psalm 1 talks about two ways of life, and it is really a wisdom psalm. When you think of the book of Proverbs, that's known as a book about wisdom, and it's a teaching about how to live wisely. And Psalm 1 is one of the wisdom psalms. There are others in the collection of the psalms. But it talks about two roads or two ways and two pathways. And, of course, poetry is full of figures of speech. And here we even find these figures of speech as we approach the book of Psalms. It's not like 
preaching through or listening to or studying the book of Ephesians or the book of Romans, which is teaching literature, didactic literature. This is poetic literature, and so you approach it differently, and yet you still use the same uh, type of interpretive approach to the Psalms. And so we come to the book of Psalms, and it talks about happiness. Notice in verse 1, it says, how blessed is the man. That word is a translation of, uh, that word blessed is a translation of the Hebrew word, which is only applied to people in the Old Testament. And it can be uh, translated as enriched, contented, fulfilled. Uh, Later on, at the about the second century, there was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint, and it was translated, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, the common language of the day of the first century, so that people could read the Old Testament. And in that, they used the Greek word makarios, which means happiness. And that's where we get this term happiness or enriched, contented, fulfilled, it occurs in the New Testament in such versions as, or verses such as Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, or happy are the poor in spirit. And uh, this Greek translation uses that word makarios, which means happy, contented, blessed, and, uh, or how happy. And the word blessed in the Hebrew is in the plural form. If we were to look at it, how blessed that word is in the plural in Hebrew and possibly the best translation of this first phrase is, uh, in the plural in the English is, is how awesome are the happinesses of this man. By the way, this is a collective masculine, what is called a collective masculine. It means everyone. So ladies, you're not left out. Children, you're not left out. It, it's all about that everybody can benefit from this. But in this passage, in this psalm, we are going to see two ways of life, the way of life, the way of loss, and finally, the separation of these two ways. There will be a separation of the ways. And so as we come to this uh, passage, look at again at chapter 1, verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. A happy person's path or way, that idea, that, that uh, metaphor of walking through life, it's a lifestyle. And uh, the, whoever wrote this psalm is referring to this. Notice in this psalm, there is no ascription like uh, many other psalms that say a psalm of David beginning in verse 3 or chapter 3, chapter 4. The first two psalms are not ascribed. We don't know who wrote them. Uh, Some would say Moses, some say David, uh, but we're left without any knowledge about that. But nevertheless, uh, a happy person's path. First, he starts with negative instruction, negative commands or what a blessed, happy person, a contented person, does not do. He does not do. These are the places we do not find happiness. Notice the actions. How blessed is the man who does not walk, nor stand, nor sit. Those are the actions. There's a progression there. It's a poetic device, walking, standing, sitting, thinking, behaving, belonging. And he's talking about this lifestyle, how it can degrade into something which will cause us great grief in the end. One writer says the influence of the godless counsel translates into involvement. First you walk, then you stand, then you sit. Someone has described the walk as a reference to those things we decide on a daily basis. Did you catch that? That walk, that path, that way are the things we decide on a daily basis. The standing is a reference to making a commitment. 
And the sitting is settled attitude of, an a, of a lifestyle, a settled attitude. First, we make little decisions, and if they are minus God, then we make commitments to cement those decisions. And finally, we settle into a lifestyle of a life without God. And the psalmist is telling us that blessed is the man who does not do those actions. And what are the associations? We will not find happiness with <clears throat> the counsel of the wicked, the path of the sinners, or the seat of the scoffers. There's three different associations there that the happy person avoids, does not walk in those things. The counsel of the wicked. The wicked are godless people. Uh, they are like your pleasant atheist, okay? He's not... Uh, he says, this, that, what you believe is okay for you, but I don't believe that. You know, we're just surrounded with that in our culture. It refers not only to the philosophies of the atheist. It can actually describe people who go to church every Sunday and yet only give lip service to God. He is not really supreme in their lives because they live otherwise. And uh, basically, they're practicing atheists who happen to go to a church. And we need to beware of that. It's not just what we would call the raging atheist outside of us, but it, we're all subject to that, the counsel of the wicked. Uh, even in our day and age with humanism and secular humanism and uh, the philosophies and cultures we have, there's something called situational ethics, would have been, which was popularized by Joseph Fletcher uh, many decades ago, and it has permeated our educational institutions and life in itself. In other words... If the situation calls for it, I can live however I want. And so the counsel of the wicked, the godless person, we do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The second one is the sinner, the path of the sinner. This is a different term that's used in the Hebrew. Most people think of a sinner as someone who does things that they don't do. Isn't that interesting that we think of a sinner as somebody who does stuff that we don't do personally? The position is comfortable but false, really because it's like a first-class seat on the wrong airplane. We need to recognize that. Sinners miss the mark of God's holiness and righteous demands. You and I are here only because of the grace, forgiveness, and mercy extended to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Christ. And we are as helpless and as hopeless as the lost except for Jesus Christ. The point is that we should live happily. We should not behave like we used to. The Apostle Paul he reiterates that in Romans and Colossians and Ephesians, many places in the New Testament. So we should not sit in the council or walk in the council of the wicked, uh, stand in the way of the sinner. And the third one is sit in the seat of the scoffer. Uh, what I've noticed, which is an amazing thing when I think of my own physical well-being, is that when we go hiking in the woods or a walk uh, out in nature, uh, my legs never get tired. But when I go with my wife to the shopping mall, you know, I walk for a while. Pretty soon my legs ache, you know, about, about five stores. My legs are hurting. And uh, so I look for a place just to stand. And then finally I look for a place to sit. And I sit with all the other old guys who are out there panhandling, you know, in the, in the center of the mall. Uh, but that's the progression. Walk, stand. And sit. If you walk long enough and then stand around for a while, you will soon need a comfortable seat. 
And that's the point that this psalmist is making. The seed of the scoffer, this is the one who is the radical atheist. This is the one who tries vehemently to tear down your faith and your religion. Hard-boiled, implacable, immovable, cynical to the core, offering no lasting hope or comfort in the world. That is verse 1. We are to avoid the actions and the associations that are listed there in verse 1 for us. But the happy person not only has this path, but now we have a pursuit. And this is the good news. These are the positive instructions in verse 2. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law he meditates day and night. Now remember when this was written to the covenant community of Israel. They were God's covenant people. They did not have of the New Testament. They had the Old Testament, probably just the first five books of the Old Testament called the Decalogue or the Law, the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic uh, Civil, Moral, and Ceremonial Law, and so they understood that. The principle, though, is that we meditate because we tend to recoil against anything that smacks of law. Well, you should do this and you shouldn't do this, but yet the grace of God has come over us and we have the Word of God completed for us, and so we are to be pursuing with intentional focus these positive instructions. Look at the two things we're to do. Delight in the law of the Lord. Delight in it. Uh, You know, not that reading scripture should be a burden, a negative downer thing. We should delight. It's like reading love letters from somebody who you love. It's interesting. My mother kept all the letters she and my dad wrote during World War II, and he was stationed away from her, and uh, she kept them in a shoebox and to, to read those, you know, and she loved, she kept them until the day she died. And uh, then one of my sisters uh, kept them to keep them organized, but uh, she would love to read it because the one she was reading from was the one she loved. And that's the word of God for us. It's this love letter that we can read and delight in it in the law of the Lord. If you're an aviator, uh, you understand what's called the air defense identification zone. And the primary one is over Washington, D.C. If you're a general aviation pilot, you cannot fly over the White House or other important places. And from time to time, uh, I read about pilots who get confused or not following instructions, and they end up over the White House or over the air defense (coughs) identification defense zone, and uh, they get in great trouble. In fact, uh, when I was flying in my flight bag, I had a card which said what you were supposed to do if two F-16s showed up on your wings. Now, and you better follow it because they will shoot you down. And so I kept that card very handy in case they came uh, up against my wing. Of course, I'm a long ways from Washington, D.C., and the airplane I flew, it would have taken me longer than it would if if I had driven to Washington, D.C. So anyway, uh, you know, to delight, to pay attention to what God is saying, basically. To really understand and pay attention, it says, delight in the law of the Lord and meditate. It says, on his law, this happy person meditates, which means listens, day and night in verse 2. The the Hebrew term here that's translated think or meditates, it can also be used, and it is also used, of the growling of a lion over its prey. This suggests that thinking or meditation is vocal, not just a mental activity. Uh, The biblical concept of meditation is not like the Far Eastern concept. It involves a thoughtful, reflective recitation of the Word of God. 
if you're having struggles in reading, your, reading the Bible and, and paying attention, is I would encourage you to just sit down in a quiet place and read it out loud to yourself. It always helps. It helps focus. It helps give you understanding. It opens up your eyes to things you may not have seen before. And so that is a good exercise, especially those portions of praise or prayer, and the Psalms are a good place to start. John R. W. Stott, the great Anglican theologian and pastor, said that this is an indication of a new birth, for a sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Romans 8, 7, Paul writes, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And so as a result of salvation, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there has been an inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. You didn't feel anything. Uh, you may not have experienced anything. However, God has indwelt you with the Holy Spirit, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, and his love for you is conveyed through his will, which is expressed to us through his word, and that any rebellion against that tells us that we are out of fellowship with him at the very least. And so delighting in the word of God, meditating it, pouring over it day and night, basically, is that what he says uh, in thinking about Bible study. And some people think, oh, it's boring, I don't understand it. Uh, I was reading a, uh, an article by Van Morris. Uh, he's a pastor back east, but he is also a treasure hunter. You know, he has a metal detector, and he goes out, and you see him in the parks. In fact, I was, uh, this last week, I happened to be in Moses Lake down at the park by the amphitheater, by the high school there, and there was a guy out there with his metal detector going just, just very carefully across the lawn, and once in a while he'd kneel down and he would dig a little bit. I don't know what he was finding. I didn't talk to him, but he kept searching and kept searching. What uh, Van Morris writes that he was given two pieces of helpful advice, and I I uh, confirmed this with one of our own uh, treasure hunters, metal detector guys. Uh, first, uh, he was told that if I found something buried in the ground before filling the hole, I should always scan the hole once again. He insisted that oftentimes there was more than one coin. There would be others. And Van Morris writes, he was right. I have proved this time and time again. Second bit of advice he gave me was never believe that a place has been hunted out, meaning that the, all the treasure was gone. For the patient hunter, he said, there will likely be other treasure waiting. Once again, he was right. Van Morris records that on one such occasion, I was given permission to hunt the site of a home built in the late 1700s, a property that I was told had been hunted out, nothing left. I started scanning early in the morning and hunted for six hours without finding anything. Just when I was ready to give up, I started giving signals on my detector, one right after another. Pretty soon I dug out so many old coins they were literally running out of both of my pockets. One of the coins I found that day was an 1865 three-cent piece that was worth about $70. You know, in the same way, we as believers, we think we know a passage. Like Psalm 1 is very familiar to us, but the more we contemplate it, the more we meditate upon it, the more we study it, the more we understand it, it is like finding more riches and more riches. And that's the wonder of the book of the Bible it is inexhaustible. It is different from any other piece of literature that has ever been written. You can study Caesar's Gallic Wars, and you can pretty much eventually get the whole picture. You can understand all the words. You can understand the historical setting, and you pretty much get it. You know, there are scholars who have it down. They probably even memorized it. 
but the Bible is one that you can spend a lifetime, more than a lifetime. There are scholars who focus on one book of the Bible. There are Mark scholars, John scholars, Psalm scholars, and they spend their whole effort studying one book, and they spend a lifetime in their whole vocation doing that. So there is always more. That is why we never exhaust it. We never command the, wor- the, the word of God. And so we see that there is <clears throat> the path of the happy person. The pursuit is the word of God. The proximity in verse 3 is rooted in life. Look at the picture here in verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted in streams of water. That figure of speech is a simile when you use the word like. It's called the simile. And so they will be like a tree firmly planted by trees of water. So this is a simile. You'll be like a tree. Uh, I was told early on uh, as a new believer, the question came up because I tend to be a little impatient with progress. And I think we Americans are, are afflicted with that. We want quick progress. We want in, we're kind of impatient to see things done. And uh, one of my mentors said, well, let me ask you this. Would you rather be an oak tree or a squash plant? You know, a squash plant is mature in just a few weeks, but an oak tree takes a lifetime or many lifetimes to mature. Which would you rather be? Not just any tree, but this is a tree that is planted firmly by streams of water. And this is a picture. This isn't an accidental seed that fell by a river, but this was the, the, the implication in this passage is it's a picture of an intentional orchardist who very carefully plants his trees. I'm always amazed, like even just going to Wenatchee, the orchards and the vineyards, and they're very specific, very intentional in how they are planted and cared for and tended. And this is the picture of a happy person. This is the simile. This is the figure of speech. You will be like a tree, and you are purposefully, very carefully planted. You know the little cute little saying on uh, plaques and stuff, bloom where you're planted? Well, actually, it has biblical underpinnings, and it comes out of this passage. It has biblical origins when you understand this verse out of Psalms. If you and I are poetically linked to fruit-bearing tree in the orchardist garden, then do you think there is a sovereign plan for your life? A sovereign plan for your life. You may think that there has been some grand cosmic mistake, and that you are just unlucky in life, but on the basis of this verse, you are planted on purpose where your creator wants you, not just geographically, but in all areas of your life. And do we complain about him? Does the uh, new apple tree or the vineyard complain to the orchardist that, oh, you planted me here. I don't have a view of the river. I mean, what's going on? Uh, That's our tendency, isn't it? You know, water is important. Notice the source of life. It's by the stream. Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. If you trace the whole concept of water through the Bible, you will find amazing things. In John 7, 37 through 38, in the great feast in Jerusalem, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow 
rivers of living water. So the happy person has a path. He has a pursuit. He has proximity. He is near the water source, Jesus Christ. Fourthly, the happy person produces, it says, he brings forth fruit. It yields fruit in its season. And that is the another agrarian metaphor. And we all know, and those of you who are involved in uh, agribusiness, you know that there is a season for products. Uh, when you plant, when there's these new trees, new apple trees are planted over in that orchard on the way to Wenatchee, they're just this tall, just little sticks. And you don't expect them to have an apple tomorrow, but down the road they will produce fruit. The orchardist knows this. That's why they go ahead and plant them, planting long-term in its season. There will be fruitfulness. And for some of you, you've not experienced a season. The season is yet to come if you are following the path, the pursuit, the proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ, the living water, you will be productive. Fifthly, the happy person's progress. It tells us there that uh, they <clears throat> leaf, uh, leaf does not wither. The leaf does not wither. And uh, the quality of life, it's the quality of our testimony. It was interesting. I, we have a, 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 our good friends in Montana. Their daughter lives in Bend, Oregon, and she posted a picture uh, this morning from her yard on Facebook, and it was of a, a shrub. The leaves were changing, turning. And she said, oh, this is so beautiful. Of course, here in eastern Washington and eastern Oregon, we take what we can get, right, as far as the color. And uh, she was raved about it, and then one of her friends commented and said, it looks dead, <laughs> uh, the fact is, God says, it will not wither. Your leaf is the quality of life. It is your testimony. I remember living in the upper Midwest, and it's all deciduous trees, oak and, and all of that. And in the fall, it's just it's beautiful. But eventually, the leaves fall off and wither. You know, it's a challenge, especially as you get, as you age. It is easy to quit doing stuff that count for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always in decay and decline in that sense. And spiritually, we need to be renewed day by day. Eugene Peterson, who was uh, the translator and writer of the, the Bible, The Message, and many other books, he wrote a book entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Yes, life changes. Yes, our ministry may change, but it's a long obedience in the same direction. We don't just sit back and quit. So the happy person has a path, a pursuit, a proximity, productivity, progress. And finally, sixthly, the happy person's prosperity. Notice in verse 3, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Of course, in the Western world, we think of prosperity as financial gain, don't we? That's why 300 billion people bought tickets for the drawing on Friday night, you know, hoping to win the billion dollars, you know. Uh, my question is, is then what? Then what, you know? Uh, St. Augustine, he's famous for saying, love God and do what you want. The idea in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, we tend to equate prosperity with material wealth and material wealth with money. In fact, in some circles, some believe that if you are wealthy, then you must be godly. That's the mistake the Pharisees made in the first century. God is promising prosperity of life rather than prosperity of bank accounts. He is assuring those who obey him and honor him that their obedience and trust they will find and experience enrichment in life. True happiness lies on not what we material possess, 
the who we are in Jesus Christ. And so there is the path, the pursuit, proximity, productivity, progress, and prosperity of this blessed person, this happy person, which we are called to be. And then verses four, verse 4, there is the way of loss. We've just seen the way of life, but now here's the way of loss in verse 4. It tells us there, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Another figure of speech, another simile. Notice that the righteous person, the blessed, the man up in verse 1, he is like a tree firmly planted. The wicked are like chaff, which blows away from the grain. The horrible tumult from one without God. It's emblematic of weakness and worthlessness in Scripture. Anytime it mentions chaff, it's worthless in the final analysis. And remember that God is the one who does the final analysis of each one of our lives. And that is the way of loss. And then verses 5 and 6, there is the parting of the ways, the way of life and the way of loss. In verse 5, he tells us, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. But in verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's interesting. Did you notice something unusual about those last couple of verses? The statement in verse 6, it does not say the Lord watches over the righteous and punishes the wicked. It says, rather, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why is this emphasis on the ways of the two rather than on the people themselves? Well, I've come to the conclusion, I've struggled with this over the years, but I've come to the conclusion that is profound in its implications that men are blessed or condemned on the basis of only one decision in life, one decision, the way in which they have chosen to walk. Remember what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Men choose Jesus or they choose not to. They choose to believe what he says is true, that he's promising us everlasting life, or they choose to reject it, the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning death. And so our justification, the question is, is how do we stand before a righteous, holy God and be accepted by him? And of course, the only answer is Jesus Christ himself. We are blessed or condemned on the basis of that one decision. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? That is the most important question you can ask yourself, is who do you say Jesus is? And if you believe what he says, that there's no one comes to the Father but through him. But notice in verse 6 also that the happy person has peace. The Lord knows the ways of the righteous. The believer has the calm, settled assurance that all is well and that God is honoring the one who honors him. That God in his sovereignty, and sovereignty basically means his providence, is his constant care for, and his absolute rule over all his creation for his glory and the good of his people. And that's why when you go to bed, thank God for his providence for the day, his sovereignty that he is caring for you. We will only find happiness in Jesus. Harry Ironside was a, uh, quite a character. He was an evangelist and a pastor. He pastored Moody Bible Church for some years in Chicago. He taught at Dallas Seminary. In fact, if you go to the library down there, you can see his Bible and his songbook. He kept them both together. Uh, but he told of a visit in one of his uh, stories of, to Israel 
by a man named Joseph Flax. Joseph Flax was a Bible teacher and a missionary, <clears throat> and he had an opportunity to address a gathering of Jews and Ar- Arabs that gathered together, and the subject of his, a- his address, his, his little sermonette, was Psalm 1. And he read it, and then he asked the question, who is the blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? This man never walked in the counsel <clears throat> of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of mockers. He was absolutely a sinless person. Nobody spoke, so Flax said, was he our great father Abraham? One old man said, no, it can't be Abraham. He denied his wife and told a lie about her. Well, how about the great lawgiver Moses? No, one, no, no, someone else said, it cannot be Moses. He killed a man and he lost his temper by the waters of Meribah. Flax suggested David, but they all knew it wasn't King David. There was a silence for a long time, and then one elderly Jew arose and said, My brothers, I have a little book here, and it's called the New Testament. I have been reading it, and if I could believe this book, and if I could be sure that it is true, I would say that the man of the first psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is that man, of course. He is the one who is perfect, the only perfect one who ever lived, and he is the sinner's savior. It is he who stands at the portal of this book of Psalms to show us the way to live and to help us to do it. So today, I would encourage you to examine Jesus and answer the question, who do you say he is? Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for